Hi, can I get a copy of uh, your menu? What? A copy of your menu? Uh, right here. Oh, right here. Okay, thank you. So the audio that you're hearing right now is of me running around Philadelphia, collecting menus from various Chinese takeout restaurants. And the reason that I'm doing this is because of a phrase that I've heard quite a few times over the years that I've only recently started to question. I've been working in corporate America since college, and there's a lot of jargon that gets thrown around in the office. It's a lot of, we'll circle back, and how much bandwidth do you have, and let's take it offline. But every now and then, maybe a couple times a year, someone will use a certain phrase that makes me pause. Say we're looking at a bunch of products on an online store, or maybe it's a list of all the different combinations of options that a customer could choose from. Someone might look at it and go, there's so many options, it's like I'm looking at a Chinese menu. Chinese menu? To be honest, I never thought much about it for the longest time. Because I've seen a lot of Chinese menus, and right. yeah, some of them have a lot of options. Count how many are on this menu. Holy crap. 146 plus 18, 164 plus sides. But more recently, the phrase has started to raise my spidey sense a little bit. As if something in the back of my head is saying, wait a minute, should I be offended by this? Wow. 217. 217. Wow. Hello, this is Culture Jumpers. Stories about making the jump from one cultural context to another. I'm Lionel Nicolau. And I'm Alana Whites. Today on the show, we try to answer this question by tracing how Chinese food made the jump to America and looking at the role the Chinese menu has played in our culture. I thought if I could collect enough menus from Chinese restaurants in my own neighborhood, I could get a sense of how many items were normal for a typical menu. But I'd only collected a handful of them before I found out that someone else had already beaten me to it, except in a much bigger way. Starting in 1981, a man by the name of Harley Spiller single-handedly collected over 10,000 Chinese menus over the course of three decades. And he wasn't just grabbing them from his local stores. He went on a treasure hunt across space and time, buying up old menus from eBay and anywhere else he could think of. I've been very fortunate to interact with the collection quite a bit. So I use it in my own research and I use it in teaching. To get some insight on these menus, I talked to Kobe Song Nichols, a PhD candidate in history and food studies at the University of Toronto, where Harley Spiller's entire menu collection now resides. Yeah, so the Harley J. Spiller menu collection is a collection of around or over 10,000 menus from around the world. It's a majority from Chinese restaurants. The oldest menu in the collection dates to the late 1800s. Wow. And I've got to see it. It's like a sheet of paper. I think it's from 1896 around there. And it's for this banquet that was hosted in I want to say New York, between different merchants. And it goes up to the present, uh, or pretty close to the present day, so like 2010, present for historians. The collection is strongest in its New York City representation. So it has over 2,000 menus from New York City. 
So I guess let's kind of go back to almost the beginning, you know, some of the earliest menus that you've seen. I found one in the digital collection that was 1905. You know, tell me a little bit about what those look like. Yeah, so with these early menus, so we have to have the broader historical context of Chinese restaurants and Chinese immigration into the U.S. at that time. So restaurants were barely a thing <laughs> in the early 1900s, in the 1800s. Most restaurants folks would go to are pretty elite. They were French fine dining establishments. And then you start seeing this growth of Chinese restaurants and other ethnic restaurants that start feeding working class or middle class folks. And so when you see these early menus, a lot of the Chinese menus from restaurants owned by Chinese people didn't serve Chinese food at all. They served quote unquote American food. And so this would be kind of like steak, uh, mashed potatoes, other things like that. In the 1920s, there's like a quote unquote chop suey craze where a lot of folks are going into Chinatown trying to eat Chinese food. And that's where you start seeing this growth of Chinese dishes on Chinese menus. Chop suey. It's a dish that's usually made from offcuts of meat and mixed vegetables, mostly odds and ends. No, really, the Chinese word for chop suey, zap soy, literally means odds and ends or leftovers. I like to think that the cheeky Chinese restaurant owner who named it that did it as a tiny act of rebellion. In any case, the dish somehow became a hit among white Americans and helped Chinese cuisine go mainstream. This helped pave the way for the next wave of Chinese immigrants that came. Slowly, by the 1960s, 1970s, American immigration policy changes, allowing for a lot more Chinese um, migrants to come in. And this is when we start seeing kind of a diversification of Chinese food. So the different regionalities. So prior to 1960s, 1970s, it'd be very rare to see any type of Chinese food beyond the Cantonese or Chinese Americanized fare. So the chop suey chow mein. Um, so it's in the 1970s when you start seeing like Sichuan food, in particular, something called Mandarin cuisine. One historical moment that's really emblematic of that is when President Nixon goes to China in 1972. And then a lot of diners start wanting the type of food that he had on his trip. So Peking duck, for example. Dim sums also, that starts coming over in the 1960s, 1970s. So like the classic hagao, sumai, which hagao is like a shrimp dumpling, sumai is like a pork shrimp dumpling, different baos, so like cha siu bao, so barbecue pork buns, egg tarts or dan tat also come during that time. This is around the same time that other American favorites like General Tso's started getting added to menus as well, based on dishes that came from Hunan province. So these later waves of immigrants really changed the makeup of Chinese menus, from being exclusively Cantonese to these almost pan-Chinese menus. But that just led me to more questions. Like, so far I've been talking about quote-unquote Chinese restaurants as if they're some kind of monolith, but they're not. Almost every one of them is independently owned. And yet, how is it that they almost all have the same pan-Chinese set of dishes on their menus? There's a striking, like almost eerie similarity across Chinese restaurants across the country, which is strategic in some ways. So if you know a menu works, why would you change it? And so the ways that these different 
restaurants transfer their menu to one another varies. Um, there's a book that just came out that talks about the Chinatown bus network out of New York City that bus folks across the country to run Chinese restaurants in various rural towns. And so that's one of the networks that facilitates a similar menu across geographic differences. So the potential reasons so far for Chinese menus having so many items, one, dishes got added over time by each wave of immigrants from different regions of China. And two, Chinese restaurant workers would carry their knowledge with them of what dishes were popular as they hopped from restaurant to restaurant via this nationwide network of buses. But I noticed something else on most of the takeout menus I saw that was also contributing to the number of items listed. And it was this tendency to list out every combination of base and protein individually. Chicken lo mein, beef lo mein, shrimp lo mein, and then chicken chow mein, beef chow mein, shrimp chow mein, and so on. And every time I saw that, my business school brain was screaming. Because the paradox of choice says that when people see too many choices, they'll be paralyzed with indecision. And come on guys, Chipotle figured out years ago how to do a modular menu without listing every single combination individually. Why not just copy that? Some of the structure in that might just be for specificity. So if you don't want to ask someone exactly what type of chow mein, you just list out all the chow mains, they could point to it, and that's there. Um, maybe there's some practical aspects of that, especially if your waitstaff don't speak English as well or learning English. It might be easier to point to a certain thing. And that's when I realized I was thinking about this the wrong way. Sure, these menus look inefficient from the perspective of a corporate, westernized college grad. But through the lens of a working class immigrant who knows little English, this menu style is more inclusive and more accessible, and as a result, more efficient. In fact, everything starts to make more sense when you start to change your perspective and consider class when looking at Chinese cuisine in America. Very nice to meet you, Dr. Ray. Is that how I should refer to you? Dr. Ray is fine. It's the easiest. My students go for it. Could be Krishnendu. Anything is good. This is Dr. Krishnendu Ray, a professor of food studies at NYU. He's the author of the textbook, The Ethnic Restaurateur, where he researched the experiences of immigrant owners and workers in the American food industry over the past century and a half. I thought he would be the perfect person to give me the socioeconomic perspective on Chinese restaurants in America. And to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the mid-19th century. China was a pretty chaotic place at the time, from dealing with a global financial crisis, to the opium wars with Britain, to historic natural disasters. People in China were looking for better opportunities elsewhere, and many heard about this place on the west coast of the Americas where you could strike it rich. Today, we call it California, but at the time, the Chinese referred to it as Gumsan, the Gold Mountain. It starts with the 49ers, 1849 migration, mostly from southern China onto the west coast of the United States, which is a bit unusual for many other immigrants, but it would be common to a number of Asian immigrants coming across the Pacific. So on the west coast, the Chinese population is getting jobs like anyone else, like in the gold mines and everything else associated with it. 
and employers were more than willing to hire them as a source of cheap labor. But this led to resentment against Chinese immigrants among the local white workers. Resentment that reached a fever pitch in the 1880s. Eventually, they are driven out of the gold mines by hypertaxation, racist legislation, and racist violence, uh, hysteria uh, against the Chinese. And they're eventually driven to a corner and they have to tolerate these two niches that white male gold miners don't want to do, which is cooking and cleaning. That's how, in fact, Chinese restaurants are born and Chinese laundromats. So there's nothing natural about Chinese men cooking and cleaning. Like most men in most parts of the world, they don't do cooking and cleaning at home. And what changes, in fact, is the racist context that pushes Chinese into these less sought-after niches in the labor market. Yeah, and so it sounds like the people who open these restaurants, really out of necessity, out of survival, they're not cooks by trade. And they didn't originally come here as chefs. Exactly. It is one of the parts of the segmented labor market in the United States that allows people without anglophonity, the capacity to speak English, uh, and without degrees that can be translated into the new labor market, they have to get into this world of feeding Americans. And they have always done that. Initially, it is largely food for in-group. You know, people inside the group, feeding them, and then slowly outgroup, uh, in this case, working class white populations. Okay, so Chinese food was largely made by and for the working class, which threw a wrench into one of my plans. Because at one point I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll do a comparison of Chinese menus to ones from Italian, French, Mexican, etc. To see if Chinese menus really have a lot of options in comparison to the other ethnicities. But now I'm wondering, is that even an apples-to-apples -apples comparison? My research shows there's a clear sense Americans are willing to pay a lot more money for what they considered upscale foreign food, which is initially all French. Italian food will be cheap food, ethnic food. It will slowly become upscale through the 1970s and 1980s. That has not yet happened for Chinese food. We are in the middle of the transition in some of the other cuisines. I'll give you another example, Japanese food. Uh, Japanese food, you look at the 1930s and 1940s, Japanese in the United States, in Hawaii, and Americans are talking about Japanese food with equal disdain towards non-Euro-American uh, food, that they don't eat meat, they eat too much rice, etc., etc. It's not healthy, it's not good. And of course, all that flips with the rise of Japan as a major economic power and a major, especially soft power, cultural power, and uh, sushi becomes a rage through the 70s and 80s. Now, most Americans associate Japanese food with Japanese managers from Toyota. I did an analysis on Michelin uh, Guide in New York City. So the Japanese restaurant covered by Michelin, I think, has an average price uh, of $235 in 2022. After that, you have French at 64. After that, you have Korean at 63. After that, you have Italian at 57, then Chinese at 51. Oof. Chinese restaurants rounding out the bottom there at $51. Fundamentally, Chinese food is seen as not worth paying as much for, even when compared to cuisines from other Asian countries. And when you look at menu sizes of different restaurants, you'll see more similarities by price point than by ethnicity or race. 
and restaurants at the lower end tend to have larger menu sizes. But why is that? I'm going to share my screen of one of the menus I have here. Can you see this? So yeah, this is what? About 200 items. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> like I counted it and it's like pretty close to 200 actually. Yeah, 200 items in the thing. Honestly, it's driven by a couple of dynamics. One is American omnivorousness. We like to eat widely, more widely than any other people in the world. So if you're going to feed an American audience, you have to have more stuff on your menu. Number two, Americans are hyper-individualized. We have individualized likings of vegan, vegetarian, or just eat chicken, or don't eat anything with MSG and a million rules around it, okay? So this kind of a omnivorousness and excessive individualization makes it necessary to offer a lot of what looks like dishes. But if you look like, say that in your list of 200 dishes of a Chinese restaurant, if you just look at fried rice, there are probably what, 10, 15 kinds of fried rice, okay? But if you look at it, one would be vegetarian, one would have beef, one would have chicken, one would have shrimp. Uh, and so in some ways to say that these are 200 items is inaccurate. They are basically very modular. Partly because these are immigrant entrepreneurs trying to feed an American audience with a wide range of individualized tastes. Okay. Second, the most important dynamic here, there's intense competition at the bottom end of the restaurant business. People barely make a living. People barely stay in business. 1%, 2%, maybe 5% profit margins. So you cannot leave any money on the table. So you want to cover as much ground as possible. Everyone is competing for the last dollar in a world in which Americans are not willing to pay top dollar for Chinese food. So in a French restaurant, you don't have to feed everyone. You don't have to get every penny out. You can have 10 items on your menu and people, in fact, will probably congratulate you for having 10 items on the menu. Their demands in a Chinese restaurant is going to be much different. So it's basically demand-driven, nothing to do with the Chinese-ness of it. It has to do with the omnivorousness of Americans and highly competitive restaurant market. That competitiveness contributes to menu size in other ways as well. Because one way restaurant owners add to their menus is by good old-fashioned copying of your competition. Some of these menus, my analysis shows some of the same spelling mistakes are repeated partly because you cannot hire, you don't have capital to hire consultants. So what you do is basically you mimic what's happening in the ethnic marketplace. Remember, these are often foreign people who have come in and starting a business. How the heck do you know what Americans eat and like to eat? You know that by looking at menus of other people and replicating them. So this is almost like an intra-ethnic consulting service. You're kind of deploying a concept and developing a menu that mimics what has worked because it's a high-risk venture and you are afraid to take risks precisely because you have, don't have as much money and it is much more difficult to succeed in this world of hyper-competition. So always happens at the bottom end of the market in most of these so-called ethnic restaurants. So now that I had a better idea of the historical context around Chinese immigration, the restaurant industry, and the class divide, 
I was starting to see how the phrase could have come about, but I still hadn't answered my original question, which was, is it offensive? And then I guess my last question, I've heard it in a corporate context where I'll hear something like, oh my gosh, we have so many options on this website or on this whatever. It feels like I'm looking at a Chinese menu. And the implication is that it's not just a lot of items, but rather an overwhelming number of items. Do you feel like, should I be offended by it? You know? Yeah, I, it's interesting to me to think about other, other menus, like certain restaurant chains also have a long menu, like not to bag on the Cheesecake Factory, but I feel like, for example, which I haven't been in a long time, it came to Toronto kind of late, but it's, it's like that also has a large menu. And so I do think there's definitely a dynamic to that and the fact that Chinese is singled out and various other ways of seeing something as overwhelming or other it's a stupid racial stereotype and it doesn't explicitly sound racist because it's just a Chinese restaurant because in fact this is the restaurant at the bottom end of the market so it's basically a class and a race stereotype we no longer hear it in the academic world but the corporate world in its culture is about 20 years behind the academic world that's so where I've heard hopefully, it yeah. <laughs> so that it'll drop out of the, uh, of the uh, corporate world I'm just wondering if we were to all agree to stop using the phrase like, oh, Chinese menu. Is there another okay way to say it? Like if I were to say, I'm just thinking like Cheesecake Factory menu or like Applebee's menu, that has a lot of items too. Or is that just changing the insult to, you know, like the class dimension? Class dimension. Exactly. Good question. It's probably true. In many other things, we can get rid of prejudice conceptually, but in terms of race and class, especially in the domain of food, that's the last domain. And the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu's work in distinction kind of says that the first mode of differentiation is disgust and disdain. Good taste is almost always defined by bad taste. And these are, for us, shorthand for idea of bad taste. feel like the ultimate takeaway that I get from this whole thing is like just stop being lazy and using dumb shorthand and just say what you mean <laughs> if you're in a meeting and you want to say this is disorganized and overwhelming you say that why do we need this dumb jargon that like ends up pitting people against each other and creating all of this harm and bad feelings for because you didn't want to take the time to say two extra syllables well I mean like that's as you know, like the English language is a language of many idioms and we like using these idioms. You could argue that business jargon is like a class of idioms. You could almost call that like a culture or a subculture, right? I, I don't want to celebrate McDonald's as a culture. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that's what I'm trying to say, though, is like, Yes, I acknowledge that anytime a group of humans get together who have some similar interest or mission or whatever, yes, you're going to develop your own culture and language yeah, and stuff. Because but, it's a form of assimilation. 
and bonding and establishing relationships. Just like teenagers will have slang. And but if your shorthand is an acronym for whatever widget your company's manufacturing, that's one thing. But why does it become part of your quote unquote cultural jargon to use the same weird culturally laden terms? No one has to call something a Chinese menu. Because it's trying to draw on what's assumed to be a shared experience. And the assumption is that most people, because Chinese restaurants are so prevalent in America, there are more Chinese restaurants than there are McDonald's, that almost everyone has had this shared experience of coming to a Chinese restaurant, looking at the menu, and seeing that there are like 150, 200 items on the menu. Kind of like making a reference to a movie like Dumb and Dumber or Star Wars, like do or do not, there is no try. Like all these references are getting at shared cultural knowledge in order to, I don't know, like make our language more colorful. And What if the only way that you can be engaging is to accidentally <laughs> offend someone? <laughs> Well, that's my point. Like, nobody realizes that it's offensive because they think it's just this shared experience. And so that's what's behind this, like that nobody has questioned it and nobody has thought to question it until you start getting not just like a Chinese person, but a Chinese person who's aware of this history and doesn't just go like, oh, yeah, Chinese menus. Yeah, they have a lot of items. I guess that's a nothing burger. But I guess that's... <sighs> Kind of what I'm trying to get at is like, I understand what you're saying, but I just feel like the onus should be on the people at the head of the power structure to take that step back and be proactive and be like, hmm, is what I said okay? Rather than like literally waiting for the one Chinese person in the room to come <laughs> to you and be like, hey, that's not okay. Like, I'm not advocating that nobody can ever make a mistake or accidentally say something that you know, they didn't realize was a problem. And like, you should immediately cut them out of your life forever. Like people are going to screw up. But at the same time, like at some point, we need to stop giving people a pass for just being ignorant and not even being curious enough to think about like, why do I say this? Where did this come from? And like, I think that's kind of the journey that you had to go on with this. Yeah. I mean, like, there's a lot of should in that statement, right? But like, practically speaking, a lot of people, they don't know what they don't know. And so it's hard to be proactive because you might not even have a framework for how to identify these things. But I feel like if I'm sitting in a corporate meeting room and I'm giving a presentation, why is the word Chinese even coming out of my mouth unless I'm talking about our market there? Yeah, but like... What I don't want to happen is people just go like, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, look through all my jargon and make sure that I don't mention anything Chinese-y. <laughs> <laughs> Chinese-y is probably not on the good list, <laughs> FYI. Like, you know, I, I had, a, I forget, it was a friend or coworkers. She was saying, yeah, you know, like me and my husband were very different in some respects. And he and I are like yin and yang. And hearing that, to me, at least, that's fine. It's a reference to something in Chinese culture, yeah. She wasn't of the culture, but the way it was used, it was just like, okay, I understand that yin and yang are supposed to be like these opposite things, but are somehow also harmonious. 
and used it to refer to her and her partner. That is fine, but I feel like what's going to happen when people are trying to like, oh, you must be proactive and police yourself. They're just like, okay, I'm just going to get rid of that too. Like any anything that sounds Chinese, I'm just not going to say that anymore. And I'm afraid of that because like I do want things like that to stay in the language because that makes the language richer. But if we're so scared of anything that sounds culturally foreign, of even saying those terms because like we don't want to get canceled or whatever, I think that's a loss too, you know? I'm in agreement with you. And I think like I'm not saying corporate culture should be gray and dead and devoid of any personality whatsoever. I don't think everybody should be constantly paranoid that, you know, at any moment someone's going to pop out of the corner and be like, gotcha, you said a bad word. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think you should necessarily be dinged like the first time you say it. But when someone calls you out on it and you now are educated about it, the onus is now on you to change and also to point it out to other people. Like... All right, the Chinese guy has educated me on why this is bad. The next time I hear it from another white person, it's on me to go to them and say, hey, I don't know if you meant it this way. I know you probably meant no harm, but here's what you're actually saying. Try not to do this anymore. And then the onus is off of the in-group to have to constantly be fighting those battles. Mm, Right. That would be a nice world. I just want a utopia. I'm sorry. (laughs) So after all this, what should I do the next time this phrase comes up? Part of me fantasizes about waging a campaign to reclaim it. Make Chinese menu mean something positive. Because one of the things I've learned is, this menu style can actually be more inclusive. It helps non-English speaking restaurant staff communicate better with customers. But ultimately, I don't know if I'm savvy enough to completely redefine a phrase like that. So I don't think I'm going to use it. And I might ask others not to either. For anyone listening out there, I'm putting the phrase on notice. Because at the end of the day, it's really only used as a pejorative. And it just doesn't seem fair, especially to all the Chinese immigrant restaurant workers who are just doing what they can to survive. And there are just so many other options for words and phrases you could use instead. So many that it's almost like I'm looking at a... Well, you know. Today's episode of Culture Jumpers was produced by Alana Whites and me, Lino Nicolau. It was written and edited by me. Music by Alana Whites. Our thanks go to Dr. Krishnendu Ray and Kobe Song Nichols for sharing their expertise and time with us. If you're interested in learning more about the history of Chinese food in America, 
I recommend the very excellent book, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food by Jennifer A. Lee. It was the basis for some of the research in this episode. Also, we want to know what you think of the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's really helpful for independent podcasts like us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. So Jason, you and I have been friends for a while. Have you heard this phrase, Chinese menu, while you've been working in corporate law? I actually, no, I've never heard Chinese menu used in like corporate jargon or, you know, corporate speak before. I have heard another phrase. It is to open the kimono. What? (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. so like, what was the context like? So we were in the process of negotiating this big IT consulting agreement on behalf of one of our clients. And we were meeting with a lot of different vendors. And every once in a while, there would be a term that gets kind of contentious, right? Both parties want different things. One negotiating party in particular was being a little bit difficult about this like emergency services clause. So the partner that I was with, he was drawing a bunch of stuff up on the whiteboard. And at one point, he just put the marker down in frustration. He's like, you know what? Why don't we just open a kimono and let's just be open and upfront about all of this? Like, what what exactly can you guys agree to? What can we walk away with today? <laughs> and uh, this was the only vendor with a managing director that was an Asian female. <laughs> and so, you know, I looked up at her and I'm like, oh my god, like, what is what is going on? What is she going to think? And she kept her cool. Like, it didn't seem like it affected her at all. And then later in the negotiation, we were having a more difficult time for a different clause that we were negotiating. And she comes up and she's like. Well, you know, why can't you guys be more transparent about this? Why can't you guys open up the kimono? You seem to like that. Like, why can't? <laughs> oh my god! I, I I wanted to I wanted to die. Like my face was so red. <laughs>